Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we provide the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we're going to talk about the movie Howl. No, not the werewolf movie. We're going to talk about the movie that's a biopic about the poem written by Allen Ginsberg. The poem is explored through a recreated interview with Allen Ginsberg, through animation, and also through a recreation of the court trial for obscenity that was brought against Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the publisher of Howl and Other Poems and the owner of City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco. My guests for today's episode are my frequent collaborator, John Helix, a local musician in the San Diego area. Find him on Facebook and Twitter at the handle of at John Helix Official. Our good friend Don, a self-confessed lit geek, will also join us to discuss the movie. Today we're going to try something a little different. The discussion for Hal was so rich, so detailed. The beats have always just been... I have not been as enamored with them as other people have been. To me, they've been a trope. They've been, uh, in a way, just something that I think is taken too seriously. And I came to a much greater understanding of the beats and almost an appreciation in the conversation I had with John, John was able to shed a lot of light on the background of the beats, who they are, how they started. And if you ever wanted to know anything about the beats and beat poetry and the beat movement, you need to listen to this episode because it's going to clear a lot of it up for you. You may not become a convert. I know I didn't, but you're going to have a greater understanding for what that movement was and the poetry that came out of that movement. Now, that's all a long-winded way to say our, our discussion was so good and it went on so long that this episode has to become two parts. Part one, which is this episode, we'll talk about the movie and give it a rating. John Helix is going to do a fabulous job at setting the context for the time period in which the poem Howl was first released, and what Howl is a reaction towards. In a couple weeks, we're going to have part two, and that's where we're going to talk more about the facts and compare them to reality. Honestly, there was just too much great stuff in this discussion, and the discussion really gives you a grounding on this beat movement. Hal gets a 6.7 out of 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, a 63% fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and a 63% rating from Metacritic. How is Hal as a movie? We will find out and talk about why Hal is an important piece of American writing. If you're ready for part one, let's get started. And if not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. volume and for everything. A little, too, you know. a little too cocksure, as Ginsburg would say. We just went right into it. And and everything was fine until it was not. I see. Until it was not? Until it was not. Or from the beginning. It became a part of it. Yes. No, everything was fine from the beginning because the conversation we had about the other movie was great. It was fabulous. So it was a false sense of fine. It, it, it was great. It would have been better if we had recorded it, but 
volumes better. Yeah. Yes. Well, forever lost to the, you know, unrecorded episodes. Maybe, you know, <laughs> the... Uh, yeah. Maybe when we have the full digital profile, we'll be able to get that information back. I don't think so. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're we're going to have to have the conversation again and re-record it. Oh, oh I'm aware. But I'm yeah. saying, yeah. like, you know, 20 years from now. You know, yes. It might end up somewhere. But yes, Don, thank you for checking. We are recording. Okay. We are good. And I'm coming into this conversation with a bit of apprehension and nervousness. Why? Because I know you're both lit geeks. So? So? So I told Don I was feeling like I was boning up for a test uh, coming into this one. Come on. I think I feel like, silly. I feel like that with the movies. Really? I don't know anything. I mean, I know like a little bit about film, but I, I don't Film techniques, direction, care. I mean, it. it I can translate it from literature, but I don't. I don't have any context or reference for film analysis. And my suggestion to Rob was to surrender to your expertise and enjoy it. He can sit back and relax and look at it from a really different perspective, because you do have more to offer, and that's part of the really great thing about having all of us different guests. When we show up, we have different areas of interest and expertise because my interest in literature is strictly interest. I have no mm-hmm. formal studying. It's not an area of expertise. I don't teach it. I enjoy literature and I enjoy investing my time in reading, but it's not the same thing. And I think he just gets back to sit back and enjoy this in a little bit of a different way. I'm game for whatever. I will state for the record, though, that I don't think I have ever had a stronger man crush in my life than the one on Jack, Jack Kerouac. Really? You better believe it. And what is it? Is I'm not going to guess. Tell, tell me what it is. Well, first of all, he's an incredibly handsome man, or was an incredibly handsome man when he was before the, the bloated years. Ginsburg thought so. Absolutely, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and everyone thought so. Um, they, Michael McClure says, you know... Uh, Kerouac should have been a movie star like that his looks were he was so good looking in his in his early years just the aesthetic of Kerouac visually but I think it's Kerouac's energy vitality I mean he has a million blind spots if we get into any kind of uh, cultural analysis or you know kind of like what his writing meant and what it did and Ginsburg's but for me, Kerouac is the extension of Mark Twain. He is the chronicler, and I realize this is a conversation about Ginsburg, um, but there is no Ginsburg without Kerouac. He's the chronicler of a certain point in American history that was a watershed, and I believe that he captured this generation or movement. It was really four people the spirit of it in his books, you're coming out of the war, going to college, getting kicked out of college, and there's this fresh energy that needs to be released into the country, injected. And Kerouac's, you know, traveling in the late 40s, Ginsburg's living in Colorado in, in like, what, 48, 49, Neil Cassidy's coming on the scene, and it was primarily, obviously, a male group. But the thing about Kerouac is the sadness. What Kerouac captures for me is the sadness of American existence. And I'm not saying in totality. What I mean is there's a sense of 
and this is alive in Howell too, the sense of motion and movement coupled with despair. Where is there to go after World War II? I mean, this is like one of the the primary questions that Kerouac is is asking. In this post-war world, in this this bubbling consumer culture that's coming to the surface, where is there any room for an honest person, to some, someone to tell the truth? And that's what draws me so much to Kerouac. Um, and, and I don't mean the absolute truth. I mean the truth as he sees it. Um, he was unflinching in his honesty on the page. He was not unflinching in his honesty off the page, but he, he gave it all to his muse. And I, I love that about him because it's like that line from, um, what was the movie with Tom Hanks uh, with the, about the band that you do? The thing that? you do. Liv Tyler says to the, the lead singer, you just save it all for your songs. Mm. And to me, that's mm. Kerouac. Mm-hmm. And that's the, okay. primary, that's the primary difference between Kerouac and Ginsburg to me. Because Ginsburg, on his deathbed, was calling his friends, asking them if they needed money. Wow. Giving wow. it away. Like, Kerouac is a really dark figure. In the, he's presented as this, you know, <laughs> adventurous. On the, he was really shy. And he had, a, he had such a dark vision of human existence. And Ginsburg, I think, was the light in that vision. Even though the poem, if we're talking about Howell, is full of despair and full, it's a lamentation. There is some sense that I get from Ginsburg, and this is why I think I don't gravitate toward Ginsburg over Kerouac. There is some sense with Ginsburg that there is hope. And when I look at the world that, I didn't live through it, but when I would look at the world that Kerouac describes and when I look at the world that Ginsburg describes, I see a much more accurate reflection of my experiences in Kerouac than I do in Ginsburg. But Ginsburg picked up you know, later on, he, 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 he let the beat generation, I don't know, go through this metamorphosis and turn into the beat Nicks and then the hippies and the, and, and Kerouac rejected all of that outright. He thought it was, you know, Kerouac said when Bob Dylan came on the scene, we don't need another fucking folk singer. I mean, that's his, that's his view of, of that culture. So, I like Kerouac's really hard. It's a hard, dark stance on life. It's a it's a very difficult stance. It presents life as, as, even for someone, as you know, Kerouac presents himself as destitute and so what. He always said his mother that he could write for money, but even even in that context, how difficult life is just to manage your emotions and just to manage yourself and your sense of identity in a culture that's sending you messages. Every, you know, I don't know, back then, every 10 minutes, now every second about who you should be and the values that are imposed upon you by a, a larger societal structure that Ginsburg and Kerouac and Gregory Corso and William Burroughs thought was at its core perverted and corrupt. So that's my long explanation to a very short question. <laughs> what was the question again? Why do I have such a, a man crush on, oh, on, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, on yeah. Kerouac? It's more of a soul crush, I would say. It's not really a man crush. It's like okay. definitely the aesthetics, but it's it's the ideas behind it. And yeah, we are here to talk about Hal. Yeah. And, uh, 
So, yeah, I, reala- but, I realize that, but the thing is, there's no way to get into that without Kerouac. I know, and, and I think we're going to need some discussion about what wasn't in the movie as well to provide context, okay. and I think you did a great job in providing some context there. But let's go ahead and bring everyone else into the discussion. Okay. Because what we're here to talk about today is the movie Howl, which is really a different biopic we're going to be talking about, because it's not a biopic about the author Allen Ginsberg. It's a biopic about the poem. And it's a biopic that is created by two directors who are known for doing documentaries. And the lead actor, James Franco, is uh, also, I don't think he was a professor of English, but he was going after, I think, his master's. Mm-hmm. Creative, at the t- creative writing. Creative writing, yeah. yeah. So, so we definitely have people who are coming to this topic with an interest in the topic with a expertise in the topic. And I think it's interesting having two documentary filmmakers come in to do a biopic because every time we've looked at biopics and every time directors are called on liberties taken, what's the response? I'm not presenting fact. I am presenting a story. A story. It's not a documentary. It's not a documentary. It's a biopic. Now we have two men who've won awards for documentaries presenting a biopic. (laughs) So so it creates an interesting dynamic to take a look at. But how was the 2010 film about the poem of the same name, written by Allen Ginsberg, as we mentioned, played by James Franco? The plot, such as it is, since this is a biopic about a poem, is told in a non-linear fashion, and the poem is also conveyed in animation. The poem is talked about in an interview format that is reenacted, and also the first reading at the Sixth Gallery on October 7th, 1955, is reenacted in black and white. Segments of the indecency trial that was brought by the U.S. government against bookstore owner Lawrence Ferlinghetti for selling the book he published, and that the poem is contained within are recreated in full color, and the poem is also discussed in this context. So the movie is about the poem being discussed in different contexts. And as far as plot, that's about all there is on this film. Well, and everything in the film is derived directly from transcripts, right? Everything that's said is accurate to the record, yes. But... We're also going to talk about what bits and pieces of that record were chosen for presentation. So there are some liberties taken as far as flow of the film Mm. by two documentarians. But just because it comes from the transcript doesn't mean it's in total what took place. So you're both literary geeks. It's pretty rare to have a biopic about a poem. What are your thoughts on the film? I love this film so much. And my perspective is a little different than John's. I I prefer Ginsburg over Kerouac. And I think it's not because I see the world as any brighter or full of possibilities, certainly not in our current context. But when you have despair with the idea that there's something on the other side, you're willing to continue to fight. And when I read something like Kerouac's, it's very dark um, and it's very clear, but it, it doesn't give me the sense of you should bother to stand up and fight that you're, you would surrender to whatever the current environment is. And that doesn't appeal to me as much. That's just not my core. And 
the other piece to this is I soul crush on Ginsburg. <laughs> I mean, he is he is so crush worthy. He's so crush worthy. <laughs> he's so crush worthy, and he just got crushier, worthier the older he got with his beard and his hair and. Um, chanting Hare Krishna. Chanting Hare Krishna. Yes. And the other thing is, I'm a huge First Amendment proponent, and I love activism that just gets my motor running. And the idea that Ferlinghetti so carefully laid out the process to ensure that Howell would be brought to trial for obscenity to further the cause of the First Amendment just appeals to me so much. They recently talked about tearing down the Columbus statue in North Beach in San Francisco, and I immediately put out there that they should replace it with the statue of Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Ooh. Ooh. Any response on that? The few people who know me who have lived up there really like the idea. I don't think that gives me any sway with the San Francisco community. Put since it in the no water. Ever, Get that I'm gonna, circulating. I'm going to keep putting it in the water. The man is 100 years old and he's a fucking activist. Oh, my God. It just doesn't get any better than that. Have you contacted City Lights about this? <gasps> no. I will as soon as we're done here. You should, most definitely. And, John, we know you have a man crush on Kerouac, but on Ginsburg. I love the film. Um I like the layers in the film, I, I, and, I, and I usually don't like animation, but I really thought the animation was appropriate and true to the vision of the poem expressed in a kind of visual, fluid visual way. My only issue with the film is James Franco, not his appearance, demeanor, It's it was his voice. I felt like he had the wrong voice for the part, because mm. Kerouac's voice... I'm sorry, Ginsburg, you can see. Freudian <laughs> slip. Um, Ginsburg's voice was so resonant. And I felt like James Franco read, like, I saw the best minds of my... He, he read it up here in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the throat. And I feel like Ginsburg really projects this resonance from his chest. And, and it, I thought that the six gallery scene, of course, there's, you, know, there's, you can only read descriptions of it. But it seemed understated. It seemed um, not as raucous as most of the descriptions that I've read. Mm. So that that was my own, because that six gallery reading launched Howell into the stratosphere. Well, launched the beat movement too, and we'll talk about that uh, to a large extent. You both probably can recite the opening lines from Howell from memory, can't you? Sure. So the best generation minds of my generation destroyed by madness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That poem does not take me in any way, shape, or form yeah. at all. I, I don't have any connection to it. I've watched the movie a couple times. I've. Did you like the movie? I thought the movie was fine. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought the movie was good. I thought it was a very interesting presentation on the topic. I thought it was interesting to do a biopic of a poem rather than a person. I, I'm always a fan of when movies leave things out that the audience has to explore to understand. Because the movie doesn't tell you how it got to trial. It doesn't fill in those pieces. It doesn't necessarily talk about the impact Hal had on the country or on uh, what happened as a result 
of the verdict. Mm. That is not in an epigraph in any way, mm. when in fact other books that had been banned were unbanned with that verdict, like Lady Chatterley's Lover, uh, Tropic of Cancer. Uh, it, it really did a lot more. And, and that's fine. I mean, I'm always a fan of when a movie incites an interest in someone and that causes them to go explore more. And then mm-hmm. they can explore beyond the bounds of what the movie had. But the movie had a very narrow scope on what it was doing. It was presenting three separate aspects of the poem. The the poem being discussed to a certain extent in the interview footage, the poem being presented for the first time at Gallery 6, and then the the trial regarding the poem, and then the conversation of trying to understand what it is mm-hmm. through the course of the transcripts of right. the trial. And I found that all to be very interesting, but there's a lot more interesting stuff that we're going to take a look at that surrounds all of that. And that's why I like the format we're doing here, because we can do that exploration and take a closer look. The movie itself, it was shot only in 14 days. It was shot very, very quickly. Wow. It was shot on a shoestring budget. That's why in the footage of Ginsburg, where it's taken a look back, the black and white footage, that's why the people he's talking to don't have lines. That's why Neil Cassidy isn't heard because they couldn't afford for those actors to be in speaking <laughs> roles. They already had James Franco for the speaking role. Necessity is the mother of invention, man. But, <laughs> but when he's sitting on the park bench yeah. and he's talking about, that's why there's not a, okay. that's why there's nothing coming back from the other yeah. actor in terms of lines because they couldn't afford it. That's how much of a shoestring budget this film was on. So they couldn't afford those three words that would take them in, into sag wages. Exactly. Huh? <laughs> the movie was directed, as we mentioned, by a pair of documentary filmmakers, Jeffrey Friedman and Rob Epstein, who co-directed a great documentary called The Celluloid Closet. And if you haven't checked it out, it's about the history of the presentation of LGBT in Hollywood films. Oh, wow. And it talks about how it would both present well and would present stereotypes. But it talks also about how Hollywood presented under the radar a lot. So if you've ever seen the movie The Maltese Falcon, for instance, remember the fat man in the film? His henchman. Uh, There's a point in the book and in the film where Sam Spade refers to him as a gunzel. Gunzel is an old term for homosexual. So there's times like that where they would hint towards it. Uh Uh-huh. In order to get it in there. Hmm. I'm assuming that was not an objective adjective. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But it was a term people weren't familiar with. And so just saying Gunzel in the context kind of sounds like gangster, kind of sounds like wise guy. It gives that connotation where it's really talking about homosexual. But uh, great, great documentary. You should check it out. And they also did the Life and Times of Harvey Milk. Oh. Documentary. Which is how James Franco wound up being connected to him because Franco was in Milk Mm -hmm. with Sean Penn. And he was looking for footage for the person he was depicting and knew these guys had done this documentary. There wasn't really footage on this person. I'm blanking on who Franco was depicting in Milk. But he reached out to them to see if from their research they had anything. And that's how he became connected to them they had had the Allen Ginsberg estate reach out to them to do something for Hal's 50th anniversary. And they missed the mark on that in developing the movie Hal. 
but that's how the movie Hal came to be and how Franco became tied to it. Mm. And and then Franco just wound up saying they really didn't have a plan yet on how to film it or dates on when they were doing the filming. And Franco just said, okay, well, I'm in whenever you guys figure out what you're doing, which helped to get the money for it. Mm. So Franco's dedication to it helped to get the movie made. But, uh, but yeah, we had mentioned that James Franco had been accepted to Yale to work on his PhD in English and had earned a master in fine arts and creative writing at Columbia university. He plays the lead role. We have two documentarians working on this film and that's some pretty serious chops to bring to a film about a poem. It was a very important poem. Some reaction to the film slate magazine recognized that Franco reads the poetry like a poet, which they noted a lot of actors don't do. What does that mean? I think it means he has an ear for the words. Rather than presenting as an actor, he's uh-huh. presenting as a poet. And that may be because of his background yeah. in getting his degrees as well. I didn't think he read the poem that well. You didn't think so? No. I thought he read it. If you've listened to Ginsburg read that poem. Mm-hmm. It's very different. It is. That thing. Franco can't slice a knife through you. Ginsburg just staggers. Oh, because the directors have noted that when they, their original plan for the animation in the film was to have Ginsburg's reading over the animation. Oh, interesting. But they decided to, they thought Franco did such a good job with it. They left Franco's reading of the poem over the narration. And they said when they showed the narration to people who are experts in this area, they initially thought it was Ginsburg. No way. No. Hey, that's what no. they say. That's what they said Who? on the commentary. Who? They did, didn't did, did they ask Ann Charters? They didn't say. Okay. No. They asked experts. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that sounds like... Uh, I don't... Uh, it's, it just sounds like a stretch because I can't... I, I can't put those two voices together. I can I can hear similarities in some of the in some of the tonal aspects, but... Ginsburg just had this roar and this revert, this resonance about his voice. I just thought it was lacking in Franco. I appreciate Franco's effort. I thought he, mm -hmm. that's that, I mean, that's Yeoman's work, right? I mean, you're trying to recite Howl through a fucking film. Yeah. Um, And, and I don't know if there really is anyone who could read that poem other than Allen Ginsburg. I get what you're saying because after hearing the director say that and then hearing Franco, I can hear bits and pieces of Ginsburg, but I can also hear Franco still coming through. Mm. And I'm very disappointed hearing that now that they did not lay Ginsburg over the animation because it was the animator with whom Ginsburg worked. Mm -hmm. And I just think it would have been so much more appropriate to have Ginsburg's voice over that. Mm -hmm. And it is. There's something about him. It's it doesn't feel loud and forced, but it's low and rumbling and forceful it's conviction that's it's like that's what i hear in ginsburg is conviction and and my thing on the reading in the film i think this is done you know whenever films look back on what's supposed to be an important event is they treat it like it's important whereas meaning meaning the presentation so rather than i've gone back and listened to the first recording which is in February of 56, the sixth gallery presentation of which there are no recordings was October of 55. So a few months after we have a recording of Ginsburg reading Hal, 
And he doesn't say, I saw the best minds of my generation. He says, I saw the best minds of my generation. He doesn't say it like that. He does. I have the recording. Compare what you just said to the recording. He he doesn't present it as Franco did, which is, this is an important moment. I know this is an important moment. He presents it as a poem. Oh, he's tro- okay. I he presents you. it as a poem he's trodden out for the first oh, time. Oh, okay. I got you. Got you. You see what yep. I mean? Yep. It's only on reflection it's important. Gotcha. In the moment, it's not important. Gotcha. I really doubt Ginsburg knew the impact he would have at the time he's doing the reading at Gallery 6. He didn't know the impact he would have, but they, the four of them made plans for this in the late 40s and early 50s. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, is, this was no accident. So I, I, agree, I agree that I don't think Ginsburg could have dreamed of the... I mean, the obscenity trial brought it the attention, but he, yeah. he couldn't have dreamed of the success that Howell would have based on that reading. Yeah. But among Burroughs, Corso, Ginsburg, and Kerouac, there were plans. Yeah, and all I'm saying is when something important has happened, it's not known in the moment. So, and so, so don't present it as if it's important yeah, when yeah. you're presenting that moment. Yeah. Poets involved thought that event was really important, though. McClure thought it was really important. Well, let, let's get into okay. that in just a little bit because... Let's first talk about a score for the movie, and I can imagine what you're both going to give it. Don, score for the movie, one through four stars? Oh, four stars. I Don. love, I just, uh, yeah. they just did such a good job. I just, I love the way they simply took transcripts and put them together in a way that told this portion of the story. I love that they brought in the artist with whom Ginsburg worked to create the animation It was good. Okay. It's just a good, it's a good visual experience. It's a good audio experience. It's a good film viewing experience. And John, one through four stars? I'd give it four stars. And I would say that the movie is actually like borders on the poetic. So uh, in its presentation, and mm-hmm. uh, I think it's beautifully done and just a- a- excellent, excellent film. I'll give it four stars as well. I'm not as enthralled by it as both of you are, but I also, <laughs> but I also don't have problems with it. So I'm, uh, and I thought they presented the time period very accurately without romanticizing it. There's too much of a tendency to romanticize the fifties. Oh yeah. And to overdo the dress styles and that type of thing. Well, yeah. But that's also the culture that these guys were fighting against. Yeah. So uh, there's a purpose to the, the beards <laughs> and the, <laughs> and the flannel and the, you know, and the yeah. torn jeans and all that. It wasn't, <laughs> it, yeah. it wasn't because you, you have a lot of money and you can dress trashy, right? Yeah. It was, it was real destitution. So, so yeah, I'll give it four stars as well. And let's go ahead and move into our portion on the facts, because we're going to talk about how facts were presented in the film and the historical and factual accuracy of the items. We will rank the film A through F at the end as a letter grade based on those historical elements. So let's go ahead and get started, because at the outset, it would seem this would be a very short discussion. It says in... In the opening, that what's presented and how comes completely from the written or audio record. We have the reading of the poem itself, the interview that was conducted, and the transcript of the court trial. While it would seem we could just give a letter grade of the film and pack it up for this episode, I think that we need to provide some background and context for what took place 
prior to the events that we see. And I think where we should start is let's go chronological on this discussion, because I'd really like to start at what is Hal? And in the movie, what's presented is Hal is a poem written in four parts by Allen Ginsberg. The movie shows the premiere of the poem on October 7th, 1955. And it uh, also shows the obscenity trial. So let's go ahead and start with what Hal is and what is it a reaction to? Okay, so, you know, Ginsberg uh, in the late 40s and in the early 50s was going through a series of um, psychological maladies, let's say. Um, he was institutionalized. Um, he was having various nervous breakdowns. And um, he met Carl Solomon, the institution. And he was so taken with Carl Solomon's story and Carl Solomon's life. And this is the personal dimension of it. So he dedicated the poem and he's screaming at the end, I'm with you and I'm with you, I'm with you, right? So, you know, Carl Solomon's madness, in quotes, to Ginsburg, and this is reflective of the view that that Burroughs would take and Kerouac and Corso, that the rational society, just this hyper-rational order and morality that was coming into play in the post-World War II world was insane. And his vision comes out of his experiences in the institution, but also his experiences with what people would call other beats or beatniks, which is a, a derogatory term. And how is a lamentation? It harkens back, I think it's first effort since Whitman to establish a national dialogue about, um, and I don't even want to use those, those terms, dialogue, because that's too clinical, um, but just to create a national feeling about what does a poem look like in terms of enacting and paving the way for a bunch of people who are left out and left out by their own choice because the society that they see around them is entirely corrupt. It's based on money and things. Sex is taboo. You can't talk about sex. You can't have, you can't have sex. You can't have sex with someone of the same sex, right? All of these ridiculous taboos while, you know what, 1948, military conscri conscription goes in, Harry Truman, after the Second World War II, or after the Second World War, is it, what? It's over. The, the military-industrial complex is just looming large in the background of this. But it's this, Ginsburg would describe being in Times Square as this, he called it the nuclear fallout. So he thought it had poisoned the imagination of Americans. He thought it had poisoned our minds in this, to think that we had won something. And what he saw wasn't an infected society with this notion of right and morality. And, of course, Ginsburg was you know, a free thinker. He was a student of Rambeau and Whitman and Baudelaire. I mean, he was very well read. And also, he was super Europeanized. That's the other thing you have to remember about uh, Ginsburg is that his travels, um, not just to Europe, but through, I would say through, you know down to South America in search of you know uh, psychedelic drugs. His constitution, and this is in this is related to his relationship with his father. How you can 
kind of talk about that with his father. Ginsburg's constitution just did not match the ethos of the time. And so Howell, I think, is a poem that is lamenting, it's lashing out, and it's all it's almost a form of prayer for the United States in the same way that Leaves of Grass was that poetic vision of what a democracy looks like, of what democratic individuals look like, what a, what a collective democracy would look like. And so Ginsburg is, I would say, if you want to put it in a literary context, I don't think there's another thing like Howl or Leaves of Grass. It's those, those so Leaves of Grass, 1855, right before the Civil War, and you think of Howell, mm-hmm. 55, right after the Second World War, mm-hmm. the, they're watershed literary moments in, in, in American culture. So I would say that, that's kind of the long description of, a brief long description of what Howell is and its, its influences and its, its purpose. I mean, Ginsburg is exercising personal and collective demons and joys and sorrow and he's seeing the the reality of his his living situation and contrasting it with the with the affluence and order and just all of that um and i think that's what makes the poem so difficult to understand for so many people because it's not literal i mean it's like music it's it, ginsburg really took like whitman he took the rhythms and the speech patterns, and he put the poem in a form that reads almost like a lyric poem, like a lyric, like, like, going back to the Roman poets or something like that, or maybe a, a romantic lyrical ballad. Well, it borrowed from bebop. Sorry? In its rhythm. It borrowed from bebop jazz in several it, respects. Yeah, and yeah, it bar- yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was influenced by jazz, but, but – um, Ginsburg was much more influenced by the poetic tradition of of Whitman and Rimbaud especially a lot of the French poets so the the form itself is not new mm-hmm. um the form the the the, the long stanza form is not new so yeah the the rhythms themselves but the the rhythms go back go, go back farther than bebop the other thing he does in the poem is it's him coming to terms with being a gay man, which in 1955 is mm. quite a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, but I I would I would argue that if you read any of Ginsburg's letters, either to Kerouac or his father or Cassidy or any bio, I don't think Ginsburg had a difficult time coming to terms with that. From what I've and read, I, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to say that lightly. Mm-hmm. What I mean is that in the in the con, I think Ginsburg was entirely comfortable with his sexuality um, very early on. Mm-hmm. But wasn't he concerned about being published? Regarding uh, concerned about what? Oh his yeah, sure. Oh yeah. sure, sure. Okay, I th- okay. Yeah. I thought you were meaning like on a on a personal reckoning with his with his sexuality. No, no. And Roger Ebert, in his review of the film, had something interesting to say. He said regarding Ginsburg, he was out when other brave souls were still only opening the closet door and waving. It took some courage to be Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> Fuck yeah! But you didn't get that sense when you heard him speak. He didn't present it as he was being courageous. He just was comfortable with, like you were saying, yeah. he is just comfortable with who he was. The thing I love about Ginsburg is his kind of polyamorous attitude toward sex, which is, and there's this gender fluidity with him. 
Um, there are lots of stories of like people meeting Ginsburg for the first night mm-hmm. or the, for meeting Kerouac for the first time or meet him. But, you know, and there's a great story by, um, I'm blanking on her name, uh, Diane De Prima, And she says the first night she met Jack Kerouac, they were at a, a poetry reading and uh, they all went back to Ginsburg's flat. And Ginsburg said, well, if we're all going to sleep here, we need to push the beds together. <laughs> but it was, again, male, female, and they, there yeah. was no discrimination between... It just seemed a non-issue for him in that context. Like, sex was sex, and it's the, he was into Gide, Andre Gide, right? Floating sensuality, the mm-hmm. notion that human beings are not just attracted to other human beings. Mm-hmm. They can be aroused by other things, by... Yeah immaterial things right so it's it's he, i think his conception was so much more expansive than even we imagine it today like of sexuality mm-hmm. right it's so it was so fluid it's not a dichot it's not a binary it's not a dichotomy it's 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 a, it's a free-for-all because as you're saying that what i find interesting is for everything you hear about the blowback that came to the poem you only hear about the homosexual aspects in terms of the obscenity trial. Oh, yeah. I have not found anything that talks about any blowback Ginsburg received for being the man who wrote those things mm-hmm. and for being gender fluid or being homosexual or being on the LGBTQ spectrum in some way. I, I haven't come across anything that talks about him personally receiving blowback. They were so, they are also, they were so insular until they, until they became famous. They were a tight group, and the the death blow was Howell in fifty six and on the road in fifty seven. That's that made the the movement famous. Um, and then you know you could you could like William F. Buckley has I, I think gone after Ginsburg. Um, there are a couple other. I'm trying to think of conservative commentators like in the late fifties and sixties. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's interesting that it's funny because there are, there are certain writers where, like Kerouac, you know, Kerouac was bisexual, mm-hmm. and I that's always on my radar with when I read him because his writing's so masculine, and so it's a weird contradiction for me, like to to think of this like puffed up macho masculine guy, which he is not in his books. Dean Moriarty is, but I I never think of sexuality when I read. When I read Ginsburg, I just experience it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. I don't yeah. go like, oh, wait, I have to work through the persona of this author before I can. It's just like, oh, it's it, it feels like the most natural expression of sexuality I think I've ever read. It's not sentimental. It's not. I mean, it's just it's real. Mm-hmm. It's like fluid. And I mean, you know, it's all of it, you know, blood, shit, piss, cum, the whole thing all, you know, wrapped mm-hmm. up into one. It's like that's sex. Interesting. You know, and since both of you connect to this poem quite a bit, uh, I wanted to get your take on this because the reviewer, A.O. Scott, in his review of this movie, he started out his review with a slight parody of the opening lines of Hal, where he says, I saw the best poems of previous generations destroyed by sanity, well-fed, neatly dressed, tiptoeing through lecture halls at 10 a.m. looking for a passing grade on a term paper. 
<laughs> and he goes on to say, it is often the fate of the most radical works of literature to overcome scandal by becoming respectable, and this fate has hardly escaped Hal. Allen Ginsberg's first published poem, a wild Whitmanian rant that has long since become a classroom staple. The wildness is still there, of course, but the apparatus of literary immortality, the paradoxical effect of which is to keep poems alive by embalming them, can make it hard to appreciate. And considering we're talking about this poem 55 years after its premiere, 48 years after its publication, it was published in 57, two years later. 65. 65 years. 65 years. So I'm curious on your take on that. Have we embalmed how or does how so no, because no, for, because it's... for me it's hard for me to connect with how because there are so many references contained in there that initially are known only to Ginsburg. There's very personal mm-hmm. references mm-hmm. that it doesn't incite anything in me one way or the other. And to a large extent, I feel the same way about the beat movement. It just does not connect with me at all. And I'm curious, since you both connect with it, what is it I'm missing? Well, I think the embalming of Howell, I don't think that you can make the call on uh, if you want to embalm it or canonize it. I don't think you can make that call for at least a hundred to, I think you need the passage of, of at least a century to get enough detachment and disinterest, you know, a disinterested opinion or view or analysis to even come close to saying like it's canonized or it's embalmed. Um, because I think we're still living with, we're still living with the like remnants or the, some vestiges of, of sixties culture. I love the beat movement. And when I say the beat movement, I mean, Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs, Gregory Corso, and Allen Ginsberg, and Neil Cassidy to a certain extent. He wasn't really a writer. What I love about them is, first of all, the notion of spontaneity, right? That first thought, best thought, no revision. That life and the page are not separate, and which I find very a very difficult, difficult conversation with even pe- people who read hard. And there, and, and there are people I know who are most of the people I know are, are in your camp. They, they, they find they have no affinity with the beats. They find them puerile. They find them to be um, just kind of like a cultural anomaly. But for me, the beats took a stand, not only against the culture they were perceiving. The thing I love about them so much is that it's the big middle finger to the universities. It's like, listen, I don't need you to train me to write. Fuck you. I'm going to drop out. Mm. You want what? What? I write fuck on a window and you're going to kick me out of Columbia. You're going to expel me. Fuck you. And the thing I love about that is the what you were just referencing. Now it's studied. Mm -hmm. And to me, that that's the sign of, of of, of a real artist i mean when we're talking about what art does and what it's capable of doing disturbing people not for just shock value but for a real purpose and getting to the core of a person's constitution their worldview how they perceive themselves how they perceive themselves in the future 
how they perceive the world around them, what they think the world around them should be. I mean, the, the poem is really idealistic in that mm -hmm. sense. So these are the things that draw me to the beat generation and those four writers in particular. Burroughs is more complicated, but the energy and they're like the antithesis of this stodgy kind of, I don't know, curmudgeonly, you know, <laughs> old professor with the tweed jacket and the pipe going, you know, and, you know, Shakespeare is my favorite writer of all time, so don't get me wrong, but, ah, oh, today uh, we shall read from the fifth, so, it's like, uh, it, yeah, they but... just smashed all of that, and they, they bridged a gap between writing, art, and having that art be commercially successful, mm -hmm and academically successful and that is just damn near impossible to do with a poem yeah. or with any piece of writing and then to cross over and have this influence on the culture which i think is mostly positive i think a lot of what they were doing was intensely self-destructive and destructive to everyone around them especially the women but Despite those those blind spots, I think that Ginsburg and the and I think the Beats made a massive stride forward in erasing or at least displaying the hypocrisy of United States Judeo Christian morality, mm -hmm. and that resonates with me in my bones because it really is a. I mean, if 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 I were to go on at length at this, notions of morality and sex in the United States have, they're absurd. I mean, they're Puritan and bizarre and I've, well, that's where they started. I, I know. Yeah. And, and that's the yeah. thing that I love so much about Ginsburg is that he doesn't even address it. He just says, this is sex. There is no fucking morality attached to where my dick is going mm -hmm. or whom I'm kissing. And to do that with, through a poem or to do that through, you know, on the road, which said, you know, get the fuck out of the university and get the fuck out of your job, right? Leave, go on the road, get out of this poisonous culture, go experience the United States and see what it has to offer, if anything. I just think that's such a value to the, I think that's such a value to the culture. And I think that it's a major achievement that, you know, few, few can, few can get, few can, few can make that crossover. And Ginsburg was one of those figures. And just to continue, it he just got better as he got older. He just was a beautiful man, just inside out. Can't say the same for Kerouac, but yeah. Ginsburg, my God. And so I think that's the draw. It's the human response, the, the, the instinctual response, right? Like the, the human instinctual response to what is a constructed reality, right? So you, like, example A, right? The, the, the thou shall not, thou shall not have sex. You can't have sex before you're married, right? Mm. Okay, that's a constructed reality. That is not a natural state of affairs. If we were all, you know, running around naturally, we'd be fucking procreating at, you know, 12 and 13, as the Romans did, mm -hmm. right? But it's so irrational, and it's so illogical, and I love that, a group of guys can get together and go, fuck that, and say fuck that in a very articulate way and in a way that gets to the fucking legal system, you know? Which I think is a good point to jump off into the obscenity trial. 
and uh, and start to talk about that because that's another portion that's depicted in the movie. Now wait, you asked me my thoughts on it. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wait for part two of the episode on Hal in order to hear Don's thoughts. But don't worry, we'll be back in a couple weeks. And that wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere, but don't look for us on Spreaker. You can find all of the sources we used to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash howl. I usually throw in some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. And for howl, I have some wonderful stuff. If you saw the movie Howl and you're a fan of the animation, I have the complete, uncut animation that you can enjoy. It's there on the website. And I also have just an incredible musical performance by Miss Patti Smith, backed by Philip Glass on piano. And she is backed by Tibetan monks on vocals. And according to the description of the video, this was all in honor of a visit of the Dalai Lama as she reads Footnote to Howl. It's an incredible performance. It's also incredible animation. Go to the website and check it out. I want to thank John and Don for talking about Howl. You can find John Helix on Facebook at John Helix Official. You can also find his music in most places where you go to get your music. How are we doing with this project? Go like us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle of at Mostly Suck, or just send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode, and we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone. <laughs>